Let me start today by asking you a question. Let me ask you one simple question this morning, which I think is the most important question any human being could ask or be asked. Here it is. Is Jesus your supreme treasure? Is Jesus Christ your supreme treasure in this life? Is he what you value and cherish the most? Is he your delight, your exceeding joy, your prize, your most valued possession, the most adored person in your life? Does his work, his life of completely obeying the law of God, his death on the cross bearing the curse of the law, his resurrection from the dead, does that mean everything to you today? That's the most important question that you could ever ask. All of eternity hangs on that one question. Is Jesus your supreme treasure? Of course, we do not always live like Jesus is our treasure, do we? We do not always act like Jesus is our exceeding joy. And we don't do that because we are sinners. We are not perfect. Only Jesus is perfect. And so when the commandment comes from Jesus in Matthew 22, 37 through 40, when that commandment lands on us, it exposes us as sinners. Jesus said this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So when that commandment, which is a summary of the law, when the law of God lands on us, we are exposed as sinners who do not love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, or mind. And we certainly don't love our neighbors as we should, do we? But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is the only person who could love God and neighbor this way. And because we are in union with him, that love, his love for God, his love for neighbor, that gets credited to us. So his record of perfection becomes our record. So on the one hand, we know that we could never live perfectly or never live perfectly in such a way that Jesus was our supreme treasure, the law points that out to us. But on the other hand, we are called to live and demonstrate that he is our treasure. And the reason we don't always treasure him is because we are sinners. So when I ask you, is Jesus your supreme treasure? I don't mean, do you love him perfectly, 100%, all of the time and never sin. I don't mean that because I know you sin. I know you and I both choose sin over Jesus all the time, even when we say that he is our treasure. But putting our continual struggle with indwelling sin aside, let me ask you this morning, putting aside our continual struggle with indwelling sin, let me ask you, is Jesus your treasure this morning? 
Is he everything to you? Is he your exceeding joy, as the psalmist declares in Psalm 43? Is he everything to you? Can you say this morning that Jesus is better than everything? That's what I want to know. Not are you loving him perfectly, but but is he your treasure, your delight, your exceeding joy this morning, your most valued possession? Is he the one you run to? Is he the one you trust in when you don't love him with all of your heart? Is he the one you come back to after binging on sin for a season? That's what I want to know. And that's exactly what Peter will ask his readers. He will ask them to set apart or to honor Jesus in their hearts And what he means is simply that as believers who are in union with Christ by faith, we are called to continually hit the refresh button on our hearts. We're called to continually rehearse the gospel so that the promises of sin don't look satisfying. We are called to continually look to Jesus as the most satisfying treasure in the universe. So essentially, Peter is just telling us in these verses to treasure Jesus. If Peter's audience is going to survive the onslaught of persecution and suffering that is headed their way because they're Christians, they have to have their hearts rooted in Jesus. They have to have their affections rooted in Jesus and his love, his love for them, his life, his death, his resurrection. And the reason why they and we must have our hearts rooted in Jesus is because our hearts are so fickle. Our hearts are so fickle, aren't they, Grace? One minute we're loving Jesus, and the next minute we're loving sin. One minute we we, we pledge our utmost devotion to Jesus, and the next minute we failed One minute we promise to do all kinds of things and we promise not to do all kinds of things and the next minute we're going against those promises and we're doing those things that we promised not to do. We are a Romans 7 people. And who knew this better than Peter? Think about who the author of this letter is. It's the apostle Peter. One minute Peter told Jesus that he would die with him And the next minute, he said, I never even knew him. They questioned him around the fire. Aren't you one of his disciples? I don't even know what you're talking about. I don't know that guy. Earlier that day, he said, I'm committed to you till the end. I'll never deny you. What does Matthew's gospel tell us about Peter's supposed unwavering devotion? Matthew 26, verses 30 to 35. Matthew tells us, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives And then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter answered Jesus, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night, Before the rooster crows, Peter, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. 
And all the disciples said the same. So Jesus just told the disciples that they would all fall away. And then Jesus quotes scripture, the Old Testament, out of Zechariah 13, 7. And he says, the Old Testament has said that you're going to fall away tonight. And the disciples basically said this to Jesus. Listen, Jesus, we know that you... The Son of God said that we would fall away. And we know that the prophet Zechariah in God's word predicted a long time ago that we would fall away. But you know what, Jesus? We won't fall away. Not gonna happen. We promise we will be faithful when that time comes. Fall away, Jesus? Not gonna happen. And then Peter took it another step, Matthew says. He looked at Jesus and basically said, if these loser disciples fall away, I will never fall away. And then Jesus told Peter that he would deny him three times. But Peter still had the audacity to say, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And then Matthew says that all the disciples said, yeah, yeah, what Peter said. We won't deny you, Lord. I mean, they were with Jesus for three years face to face. He's telling them they're going to fall away. And they're like, no, we're not. No, we're not. I'm committed. My devotion to Jesus is so glorious and grand. I will never fall away. And we tend to think that our devotion to Jesus is so good. If men who walked with him every day for three years could fall away, who are we to say that our commitment to Jesus is so good? Well, we all know how this ended. All of the disciples ran away in fear. Mark 14, verse 50 says, they all ran away, left him in the Garden of Gethsemane. They took off when they saw those soldiers coming. And Peter, because of the fear of man, denied Jesus three times in the face of persecution. Face to face with persecution. Around that fire, Peter said, I do not know that man. I don't know what you're talking about. Never heard of him. And this guy... Peter, the guy who swore he'd never fall away, the guy who said that he would die for Jesus before he abandoned him. This guy, Peter, writes a letter to a bunch of churches that are undergoing severe persecution for their allegiance to Jesus. Who better to write this letter than someone who has been there, done that, and got the t-shirt? And what Peter knows from experience is that even when we fail to treasure Jesus in our hearts, even when we shrink in fear at persecution, even when we cower in the face of persecution, Peter knows that Jesus keeps on loving us. Because what did Jesus do after Peter denied him? He showed up on the beach that day as Peter was fishing and he made him some fish tacos and came to restore him. Jesus keeps on loving us even when we fail repeatedly. That's the gospel. We all fail. Our commitment to Jesus stinks. Your commitment to Jesus stinks. I hate to be the one to drop that on you this morning, but your commitment to Jesus stinks, and so does mine. But the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. That's the gospel. That's good news for fickle people like us. But Peter also knows from experience what suffering and persecution can do to a believer's heart. So he writes to tell them that they need to treasure Jesus above all things and that that treasuring 
will strengthen them to endure suffering. Peter wants them to stay focused on Jesus because Jesus is the only one who can sustain them in the midst of persecution and suffering. And Jesus is the only one who can sustain them when they blow it and they turn away from God. It's only Jesus who sustains them. Now look at verse 13 and verse 14. Hear the word of the Lord, 1 Peter chapter 3. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. As we begin to look at these verses, it's important to remember what came before. The good that Peter is talking about them doing is what he mentioned that we looked at two weeks ago in verses 8 through 12. When Peter said, don't repay evil for evil. Don't repay reviling for reviling. Instead, bless your enemies. Keep your tongues from evil. Keep your tongues from speaking deceit. Seek peace in your relationships. So Peter's saying, no one's going to harm you if you do those things. He's saying that if they do not contribute to drama by slandering and reviling and spewing forth vitriol from their tongues, he says, then no one's going to harm you for that. So think of it this way. Think about your workplace, your neighborhood, your family, this church. People start arguing, gossiping, complaining, and fighting. And there's one person who doesn't chime in. One person who keeps this hole on their face shut. One person who minds their own business. Does anyone look at them and then attack them for being quiet? No. Why? Because we love peacekeepers. We love people who don't contribute to drama, don't we? So Peter is saying that if you keep your mouth shut, you seek peace in relationships, you don't return evil for evil, then he says, no one's going to harm you for that, for doing good. Why? Because you're flying under the radar in those relationships. Most people will not harm you for not contributing to drama. Most people will not get in your face and hurt you if you're the guy who's not contributing to all the drama that's happening. That's Peter's point. But he also means this. Who is going to harm you if you are zealous and do the things in verses 8 through 12? Who is going to really harm you if you do the things in verses 8 through 12? Who is going to harm you when verse 12 set the, says that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous? So even if someone tries to harm you or they actually do harm you, the Lord is watching over you. God is in control. God is sovereign. As verse 12 says, God is watching over you and listening to your prayers and his face is against evildoers even if those evildoers harm you. That's why Peter says in verse 14 that even if someone does harm you, even if you do suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Now what does that mean? How in the world is it a blessing? How it is a good thing to suffer for righteousness sake? Well, let me answer by quoting some scripture. Matthew 10, 28, Jesus said, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Romans 8.31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? <coughs> Psalm 56.4, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? 
Even if we suffer persecution for being Christians, it's still a blessing in that they may even kill us, but they can't touch our souls or our spirits. They may kill the body, but God will raise it one day. They may persecute us, but God is watching over us. And if God is for us, who can really be against us? Even if we lose our lives because we're Christians. Now there is no doubt that we will suffer in this life because we are Christians. And quite honestly, I think that in the coming days ahead, I wouldn't be surprised if persecution and suffering began to become more and more intense for Christians here in our own country. I wouldn't be surprised, which is one of the reasons why we must be discipling our children, rooting them in the character and the sovereignty of God. Because one day, I fear our children may go through something horrific, and I want them to know about Jesus, that he will never leave them or forsake them. So I have no doubt in my mind, could be wrong, that the days ahead look pretty dark for the church, but that's usually when the church flourishes. Not that we are scared by any of this, but we need to be discipling our children and rooting them in the character of a sovereign God who is all-powerful and good. So there's no doubt that we will suffer in this life because we are Christians. And Peter has been ramping up his letter to get to this point of suffering. In fact, the theme of suffering will take over the rest of Peter's letter. Peter's letter is consistent with the rest of scripture which testifies to the fact that we will suffer in this life because we are Christians. John 16, Jesus said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I want to give you peace because you're going to have tribulation. Acts 14, 21 to 22. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And then Jesus himself said in Matthew 5, 11 and 12, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In fact, the word that Jesus uses here in Matthew 5, the word for blessed is the same word that Peter uses in verse 14 when he says that we will be blessed when we suffer. The word blessed can be translated as happy or fortunate. Paul uses this word blessed, same one that Peter uses. Paul uses it in Romans 4, 7 to describe the person whose sins are forgiven. The person whose sins are forgiven is happy, Paul says. Are your sins forgiven? What does that make you? It makes you happy. I am so happy that my sins are forgiven. Then in Romans 14, 22, Paul uses the same word, happy or blessed. It says that the person whose conscience is clear is happy. Paul uses the same word, happy or blessed, two times in 1 Timothy to refer to God 
1 Timothy 6.15, he who is the happy and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. 1 Timothy 1.11, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the happy God with which I have been entrusted. So our God is the happy God. Jesus is infinitely glorious and happy. We serve a happy Savior. John Piper comments on 1 Timothy 1.11 and says this, we may learn from the phrase, the glory of the happy God, that a great part of God's glory is his happiness. It was inconceivable to the apostle Paul that God could be denied infinite joy and still be all glorious. To be infinitely glorious was to be infinitely happy. He used the phrase, the glory of the happy God because it is a glorious thing for God to be as happy as he is. God's glory consists much in the fact that he is happy beyond all our imagination. God's glory consists much in the fact that he is happy beyond all of our imaginations. We could put all of our minds together and try to think how happy is our God and it's beyond all of our collective brains. And I don't put too much stock in our collective brains. At least if yours works like mine. And this word happy or blessed is the word that Peter uses to describe believers when they undergo suffering and persecution because they belong to Jesus. We can be happy. We can have joy. We can be, as Peter said in 1 Peter 1.8, we can rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory because we know that our God is sovereign, that he's in control of everything, and that he is the one who is in control of our suffering. He's in control of the persecution that comes into our lives because we belong to him. So we can suffer and be blessed. We can suffer persecution and be happy. I know it sounds crazy, but it's true. We can have joy even when we suffer persecution because we belong to Jesus. It's like what the author of Hebrews said about Moses in Hebrews 11, 24 to 27. He said, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. What the writer of Hebrews is saying is that Moses chose to be mistreated along with all the other Israelites, than to stay in the palace and enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin that were at his fingertips. He continues, Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. He considered the reproach of Christ suffering because he's in union with Christ by faith, his relationship with Yahweh, the sovereign Lord. He considered that reproach, the the persecution, the suffering that would come into his life. He said, this is a greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt, all the treasures of the pharaohs. He was looking to the reward, which is none other than his savior, Jesus Christ. 
And so how does the writer of Hebrews describe those believers who lost their possessions when they visited other believers in prison because they had been thrown in prison for their faith? This is what he says. You had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So some Christians were being persecuted, suffering. They got thrown in jail because they're Christians. Other people in their small groups and Sunday school class said, we need to go visit them, bring them food, clothes, blankets, encourage them. And while they were visiting these believers in prison, someone broke into their home and took all their stuff. And they come back home and their house is a mess and their TV's gone, their iPad's gone, computer's gone, everything's gone. And they said, I will joyfully accept this because I have a better and lasting possession, namely Jesus Christ. We can have joy, Christ-centered joy, joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, even as we suffer persecution, even if we lose our homes, which might happen one day in America. They may come and take all of our belongings because we belong to Jesus Can you say in that moment, take it. I've got a better and lasting possession. Can you say that in that moment? May God help us to be able to say that. We can say that because we have the ultimate treasure already. It's our Savior, Jesus. And that's why I hope you leave here today and once again, you treasure Jesus. Because Jesus, the one we treasure, because he is the happy and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords, then we don't have to fear or be troubled, as Peter says. We don't have to be afraid of the days of persecution that might come to our country. We don't have to be troubled by that. Because we serve the happy and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords. Instead, Peter says, something else you should do. Instead of fearing and being troubled, instead of fearing ISIS or some other terrorist organization, instead of fearing our coworker who hates Christians, hates the church, hates Jesus, hates you, instead of fearing them or being troubled by them, we're called to do something else. Look at verse 15. But instead of being afraid, in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So instead of fearing those who persecute us, instead of being troubled by suffering, we're called to honor Christ the Lord as holy. So what does that mean? The Greek says literally, sanctify or make holy Christ as Lord in your hearts. In fact, it's the same Greek word that's used by Jesus in the Lord's Prayer when he says, Father, hallowed be your name. Hallowed, that's what Peter is saying here. Make your name holy. Jesus prays that God's name would be made holy or set apart into another category separate from other names, that God's name and his character would be valued and treasured above all other names. 
So the idea of sanctifying or making holy simply means to be set apart. That's what the word holy means. It just means to be set apart. So in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah sees Yahweh, the sovereign Lord on his throne, and he cries out, holy, 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 the Hebrew word kadosh, 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 what he's saying is set apart, set apart, set apart, Yahweh, you are set apart from everything, everything in creation. You belong in your own category. So I even think it's wrong for us to say God is big and we are small. No, because you're implying that we're in the same category as God. He's in another category. It's not that he's big and we're small. He's in a whole other category. I've got no category for it, but you, God, you are set apart. You are holy. That's what it means to be holy. It's the set apart. So believers are holy in that we are set apart into another category, and that category is Jesus. It means that now we belong to Jesus. We were enemies of God, and we've been transferred into the kingdom of his son, and now we belong to Jesus. That's what it means to be holy, to be set apart and to belong to Jesus. So to set Jesus apart, to make him holy, as Lord in our hearts means that we set him apart in our affections. It means that we treasure him above everything. It means that he is our supreme treasure. He is our delight. He is our exceeding joy. It simply means that we treasure Jesus above everything in this world. And when you treasure Jesus this way, it actually helps you share with other people why you have such hope. When you unbelievers ask you, why do you have so much hope? Peter says in verse 15, they're gonna ask for the reason for the hope that is in you. When unbelievers ask you, why do you have so much hope, man? ISIS is coming. How can you have such hope? There's no good candidates for the next election. How can you have such good hope? Social security's gonna be gone in a few years. How do you have such hope, man? Tell me. This is what you say. You want to know why I have hope? Why I love Jesus? Why I treasure Jesus and I follow him? Because he first loved me. Because I'm a sinner and he loves sinners. Because he lived and died for me. Because he forgives me of all the many, many, many sins which I commit all the time. You want to know why I have hope? Why I love Jesus? It's because God's not mad at me anymore. Because God poured all of his anger at my sin, out on his son. That's why I have hope. And it's by treasuring Jesus that you'll then be able to respond to people with gentleness and respect, as Peter says in verse 15. It's understanding how gracious God has been to you in Christ when you didn't deserve it, that causes you then in your response to suffering and persecution to be kind and to be gentle. It's when you realize that it's only by God's grace that you are saved, that you are gentle with others. It's when you realize, you know what? I could be the unbeliever at work who hates Christians. I could be the unbeliever at work who hates Jesus and hates the church. It's only by God's grace that I'm not that guy. And when you realize that, as you talk to that guy at work or in your family, it causes you to respond with gentleness and respect because you realize it's only by God's grace that I'm not like him. And when unbelievers slander you for your good behavior in Christ, 
you can have a good conscience because you are in union with Christ. I think what Peter means in verse 16 is that unbelievers will slander you for your good behavior. They don't like it that you're different. Or he may even mean that unbelievers will slander you for, in their eyes, being a goody two-shoes Christian. They'll slander your good behavior in Christ. They'll slander you because, oh, you think you're so good, Christian? He may have that in mind. Peter says we can have a good conscience when this happens because we know that we are forgiven. We can have a clean, clear conscience even when we know how sinful we are. And have you ever felt that tension in responding to unbelievers about why you have hope? You want to tell somebody about Jesus, but you're thinking, man, I'm so sinful. Who am I to tell anybody about Jesus when I struggle with my sins? You leave the house in the morning, you have an argument with your spouse, say something you shouldn't say. You go to work, somebody asks you, why do you have so much hope? And you're thinking, can I tell this guy? I just yelled at my wife. You ever feel that tension of like, I'm not good enough to share. Am I a hypocrite? No. Because you're forgiven. You're in union with Christ. That's the whole point of the gospel. Jesus came for sinners, and he only uses sinners to tell other sinners about him. Only sinners can preach the gospel, humanly speaking. Only sinners can give the reason for the hope that is within them. Only sinners can be gentle and respectful as they defend the faith. Only sinners can have a good conscience when they are slandered. Why? Because there are only sinners on this planet. The difference is that some of the sinners on this planet are in Christ. They are in union with Christ by faith. So some of the sinners on this planet like us, are repeatedly hitting the refresh button on our sinful hearts so that we can treasure Jesus. And these sinners who treasure Jesus are called to love and share the gospel with other sinners so that those sinners can come to love and treasure Jesus above everything. And when you share the wonderful gospel message, Peter knows that you may be persecuted. Peter knows because when you begin to share the gospel and you tell them that the law of God declares them as a sinner, as a rebel, Peter knows when people hear that news, the bad news, which has to precede the good news of the gospel, they're not gonna like it. Nobody likes to be told that they're a rebel and that they've broken God's law. So Peter knows when you share the gospel and you talk about their need of a savior, some of them are not going to like it and they'll persecute you. That's why he says in verse 17, it's better to suffer for doing good if that's God's will than to suffer for doing evil. It's better to suffer because Jesus is your treasure and you can't keep it to yourself. I want to tell people about him. It's better to suffer that way when you say, I got to tell you about my Savior. He's so good to me. It's better to suffer because you belong to Jesus now than to suffer for doing evil. It's better to suffer because Jesus is your treasure and you just want to tell people about it whether they get angry and offended or not than it is to suffer for doing evil. So let me ask you again this morning, is Jesus your supreme treasure? Can you say as we were just singing, Jesus is better? You may have to say, make my heart believe, Lord, 
You will have to say that. God, make my heart believe because this sin looks so good. Satan's wrapped it up nice and put a bow on it. I want it. Make Jesus be better. Open my eyes. Send out your light and truth. Let them leave me your holy hill. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, Psalm 43. You've got to pray, God, make my heart believe when you don't think that Jesus is better. But Jesus is better. He's better than everything. Jesus is better than bacon. Jesus is better than all the money in the world. Jesus is better than intimacy with your spouse. Jesus is better than coffee. Jesus is better than your basketball team winning the final four. Jesus is better than everything in this world. Can you say that this morning? You might have to say, God, make my heart believe the reason you have to say make my heart believe is because you're a sinner. Is Jesus your supreme treasure? Have you repented of your sin and rebellion against God? Have you by faith reached out to Jesus and cried, have mercy on me, Lord, for I am a sinner. That's what it means to be saved, to be born again. Is Jesus your treasure are you enthralled with his love this morning are you overwhelmed that he forgives sinners are you overwhelmed that he forgives you are you overwhelmed that it is finished like he screamed out from the cross are you overwhelmed that jesus lived and died for you are you overwhelmed that nothing not even your sin, not even your lousy commitment, not even your broken promises can separate you from the love of God. Are you basking in his love this morning? Matua Mahiani said this, any moment in our lives when we bask in God's mercy and grace, is our highest moment. Any moment in our lives when we pause to bask in God's mercy and his grace, that's our highest moment. Are you basking in God's grace and mercy this morning? His mercy not giving you what you deserve. His grace giving you what you don't deserve. Are you basking in that this morning? That's what it means to treasure Jesus. You bask in his mercy and grace. Any moment in our lives when we are basking and taking in Jesus and his mercy and his grace, that's our highest moment. John Piper said, worship is not bringing buckets and buckets of your labor to church on Sunday morning to try to dump them into the fountain. That's not worship. He said, worship is coming to the fountain and drinking and drinking and drinking and drinking and then looking up occasionally and saying, ah, that's worship. That's what it means to treasure Jesus is to come and to drink from the river of his delights and to drink deep and to look up occasionally because you just keep drinking it in and just to go, ah, so good. That's worship. That's what it means to treasure Jesus above everything, to come and drink and drink and drink and stop occasionally and just say, ah, oh, are you doing that this morning? 
any moment in our lives, when we do that, that is our highest moment. Because then it gives him the glory as the fountain and the treasure. And that's what this table is about here this morning. That's what the Lord's Supper is all about. It's about treasuring Jesus. It's about basking in God's grace and mercy. It's about basking in his covenant promises. So this is our highest moment, church. This is our highest moment right here, Grace. This is the highlight of what we do. Not our serving, not our giving, not our praying, not our singing. That's not our highest moment. Our highest moment is right here, basking in God's love for us. And we will do that today by eating of the Lord's Supper, by tasting and seeing once again that the Lord is good. but I'm afraid that some of you don't believe that this morning. Scholar F.B. Meyer said this. He said it well over 100 years ago, but it just might be what some of you need today. He said this. The love of God toward you is like the Amazon River flowing down to water a single daisy. The love of God towards you is like the Amazon River and all of its strong currents moving and flowing, making a path so that it can come down and water one single flower. Some of you need to hear that today. Some of you need to hear that because you feel dirty this morning. You feel unclean. You feel like God doesn't love you. Some of you, Don't even think that God likes you. That is a lie. That is a lie straight from the pit of hell. This table here this morning, screaming out to you that God's love towards you is like an Amazon river flowing down to water a single flower. Will you bask in that love today? Will you let it sweep over you and get caught up in Jesus' love this morning? Let's pray. Father, our highest moment is when we come and center our thoughts on your son Jesus and what he has done for us. Our highest moment is not bringing you buckets of our labor. Our highest moment is not giving in the offering or preaching or singing, playing instruments or giving goldfish to children in a Sunday school class. Our highest moment is gathering as a people to bask in your love for us and to focus our eyes on your son, Jesus. And we do that this morning at the table. And when we see Jesus, we're reminded that we're sinners. And so as we prepare for, to eat the Lord's Supper, Father, we ask you to forgive us of our many sins. Wash us, cleanse us, and then may we eat and drink today and celebrate the love that you have for sinners like us. In Jesus' name, amen.